So a couple of notes as, as we begin. Um, one, we actually are going to make it all the way through 18 verses in one setting. So it is a Thanksgiving miracle. We're going to do it. I know you're flabbergasted at the reading of 18 verses. This isn't a series of four sermons. We're going to do it all this morning. Um, the other note is I have to use my computer this morning, which I, I may fumble my way through this. I'm not sure. Um, just by providence, uh, the printer is out of ink here at the church. And so um, then I thought, well, we'll just print it at the house. And the printer at the house is out of ink. So, um, But it might work in your favor because... I typically print it, and then I go over it two or three times, and by the time I'm done with it and editing it, it's got like two or three sermons in the margins. So if I stick with just what's here, um, it might save you some real serious time. But it's like the the teacher who says, we're going to get out of class early today, and then you don't, and then you're angry. So I'm setting myself up for fail, but... um, so that's the note that why the computer is up on the, the um, podium this morning. As we look at chapter 20, as has been read for you, verses 1 through 18, I was studying it earlier this week, and it makes very intuitive sense uh, to me. Um, I, I'm kind of a lifestyle, where I'm at, where Adria is at, where our family is at um, in, in our life cycle of raising kids. Um, that is between Jesus and the religious leaders, verses 1 through 8. That argument just immediately as a father of of young children strikes me as a very natural and common sense argumentation that is daily in our house, daily, and, and multiple times a day. I hear someone say something to some other person, and that person says, who said that's, that's standard, right? Or, or, or perhaps it's the same thing of verses 1 through 8 right here between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, here in our house and the more crass version of who said um, to the messenger who comes and says, thus saith, you know, the household rules and regulations. They say, you're not the boss of me. That's the other version of who said. Um, and then inevitably somebody reports, I'm coming on good word of someone else's authority. Dad said, or, or mom said, or whatever that is. And then that immediately changes the context. The question, generally speaking, even of adults, um, for all of us in different life contexts, is, is still the same question, um, generally speaking, by whose authority do I have to do this? You know, a, a new thing comes through work. There's a new task at your job you're now having to do. You, you want to know, like, is this something I have to do? Or is this something you want me to do? The, the, the question of what binds me to this content is a question of by whose authority am I needing to conform to this? That's the question in verses 1 through 8. That, that's the context or the conflict. Look at verse 1. Um, Again, to put it into the context of what we've been working on for a while in Luke's gospel is this last holy week of our Lord. Um, That is verse 1, one day. So somewhere between his cleansing of the temple, we're somewhere now in the days of Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. We're definitely on on the front end of that. But he's spending multiple days, as you saw in verse 45, 
of, the, of chapter 19. He entered the temple, began to drive them out. Oh, sorry, verse 47. And he was teaching daily. So you have Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of Holy Week. He's conducting a teaching ministry at the temple. One of those days, um, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20, says this. As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple complex, that's where he's at, in the same scenery of where he drove out and cleansed the area of the robbery and the mischief. He showed up and he began teaching right there where it all went down um, the, uh, the day or so before. He's teaching in the temple, and, and Luke makes clear the content of his speaking is the gospel. That's the comment of verse 48. The people were hanging on his words because he's preaching to them the gospel. Then you see this rise up in the analogy of my own home. You're saying that the, if, if someone is, is, is heavy burdened, laid about with a lot of religious burden and sadness and confusion, you're saying, come on to me, I'll lift that burden. I'll, I'll take this sense of access, and you lay your faith upon me as the object, as the sole object of that, of that faith, and I will redeem you. I'll give you freedom from the shackles of religious control. And the people are hearing it and hanging on the words of it. But not everybody. Some people have skin in the game and keeping a stranglehold on the religious control. Those people emerge in the second portion of verse 1. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, Who said so? Right? Verse 2. He said to them, and they said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or, or you're not the boss of me. The, the second portion of verse 2, or who it is that gives you this authority to teach the gospel at the place of the temple complex. Now, the reason why these guys would ask it right at the temple, you notice there's three groups of people who emerge in the text immediately, and they kind of combine, form the religious control of the context of the temple. So you have three groups of people, and each one of them derives their authority from their role at the temple. So if you're going to undo the temple scenery, if you're going to throw over the money changers, if you're going to shut down the entire system, that's a direct affront to us and our authority. Because what goes down at the temple is where we derive our authority from. So look at each group just briefly. You see the chief priests are present there. Now they would have authority in the temple complex. That's the problem. It's in the temple complex. They would have authority in the temple complex because of pur purity of birthright. Right? So the chief priests, that's, that's a birth class. They, they have the authority. They're born into these families. They're in this situation. They get trained and they are of the priestly Class, their authority is in that temple complex. Jesus is coming and saying, I'll let you free from the shackles. And immediately, very naturally, the question is, who gives you the authority? The other group, the scribes, same idea. Legally trained, scholars, experts in the law, and in the additional teachings of his history of the rabbis. They're the scribes. They're there to explicate, teach, conduct Understand, debate, weigh, controversies, items, the scribes. Where do they do this? At the temple complex. They have a derived authority, and their authority is demonstrated at the temple complex. 
Finally, the elders. You have elders who, again, form that kind of trifecta of leadership in the temple complex. They're just prominent families, people who rise to authority and rank. They're the elders who form that context of religious authority. They weigh judgments. They settle controversies. They are the elders that then lead. So combined, if you put verse 1, who has a problem with hearing the gospel? Well, it's the authorities of the Jewish religious and political life. Why do they have a problem in the temple? Because that's where religious and political life is explicated, taught, weighed in on, described, instructed, catechized. So as they see it, as Jesus walks in and begins preaching the gospel, after that whole situation of overthrowing the money changers and the inflation rates and the animals being sold at exuberant costs, the point of selling access to atonement, selling access to mercy, they figure as he conducts his teaching ministry at the temple, he's going to get caught for being no authority at all. Because he's at the temple complex where everybody knows who's an authority here, the elders, the chief priests, and scribes. In other words, they feel like, oh, okay, we have a shot at this guy now because he's doing this all at the temple. He has no authority at the temple. Ah, we have home court advantage. So they approach the Lord, as you see there in verse 1, to ask the heart of the matter. Now, it makes sense that we would be here, and it makes sense that we would be conducting teaching, that we would be leading, that we would be guiding, because we derive our authority from the temple complex. You, however, you tell us, by what authority, since it's not the temple complex, what authority do you say these things with? And who then has vested you since you are unordained in the ministry of the temple complex? However, notice earlier, um, well, we won't go all the way back, but you remember at the very earliest portions in Luke chapter 2 or 3, very early on, our Lord is 12 years old. And you remember we talked last week, he got left behind in the caravan that left Jerusalem after the Passover event. And then they found him where? They found him in the temple. And they're questioning him. Why are you putting us through the ringer here? We were looking for you everywhere. And then you remember, he refers to his place and his role at the temple as being at his father's house. Even at 12 years old. A rightful identity of the temple. Now here you're at the temple multiple years later. And those who derive their authority from that temple come to him and say, where do you get your authority? Our authority is vested in the temple complex. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not your house. It is my father's house. So the possession of who owns the home court here is coming to a head. Is it your authority or is it my authority? Is it your temple or is it my temple? Same thing with if you look just earlier, it's interesting. So in in, in Luke, I want to get the reference correct. It is chapter 2, right at the end, toward the end of chapter 2, where Jesus says, this is my father's house. Look at the way that he updates the phrase now that the temperature is getting turned up and we're moving towards crucifixion. Look, at, maybe we glossed it last week, and we didn't spend much time on there, but notice how he updates the language of, 
did you not know that I would be at my father's house to verse 45 and 46 of 19? He entered the temple and he began to drive those out who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Do you see the, the first person pronouns? He's owning the temple complex as his own. And he knows this is going to crank up the temperature in the room. And it's going to lead to more conflict. And he's ready for the conflict. He's ready to expose them for being false teachers, being false leaders. One question that one, one author writes the question this way about what's taking place between Jesus and the authorities in this context. Again, who has home court advantage? They clearly think they do, and Jesus is saying, I do. It, it, it's my house. This author writes this, if you can soak it in just briefly. The question they put to Jesus then, at this point, right, who's my boss? Who, you're not the boss of me. By whose authority are you doing all of these things? Are you calling us to repentance? By whose authority? One author comments this about the critical nature of this question. The question they put to Jesus then is not an innocent one. It isn't something tangential. He goes on to say, nor can one consider the character of Jesus' instructions in the temple as naive. Right? This is, it is written, my house is a house of prayer. <gasps> The author is saying, neither can we consider the character of Jesus' instructions in the temple as naive. It's very calculated. He continues just briefly to say, Luke brings into focus for us a war of worlds. Right? So, so the temperature is ratcheting up. We, we have maybe, we, we're looking at probably from chapter 20, we're looking at we have Wednesday and Thursday left of teaching ministry. Remember when they said, silence all these people who are laying on you all of these accolades from the Old Testament as though you're the king of Israel. Silence them. Don't you hear what they're putting upon you? It's blasphemy. At that point, he made the shift, right? No, I'm not going to silence them any longer. He knows this collision course that he is on with them, and he's fine with it. So the author, one more time, just to conclude his comments, Luke brings us into a focus of a war of worlds, fundamentally different visions of God's purpose, the character of leadership, and the nature of Israel's redemption. So in other words, the stakes could not be higher for the remaining three days of our Lord's life. The stakes could not be higher. Now again, they think they have home court advantage. But look at how our Lord brilliantly puts a vice grip around them. I'll begin in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 6. Look at the text as we continue the conversation of chapter 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the religious group, everybody, Religious and political life together, representatives, representatives of the entire temple leadership, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Here's the trifecta. 
They came up to him and said, now, he's preaching, it's like me doing this kind of right now, and then somebody walking up and then talking to me in front of you about what I'm saying and calling me to an account of what I'm saying out here so that it can put me on the hot seat and be exposed in front of all of you there so that the rest of you would turn towards these people and they say, finally, we've gotten rid of him. I'm going to focus with you and correct your perceptions of what you thought he was, someone telling you the truth. This is a situation in the temple complex. So they approach him. Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority to preach like this, to teach like this, to be right here in the midst, to cleanse, to overthrow the money changers, to to throw a big fit like this about our religious operations? Who gives you this authority? Verse 3, he answered them. I also will ask you a question. Now, tell me this. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now they're feeling the weight of the moment. Like, oh, they may have opened a can of worms here. Why is he even asking us this? Look at as it continues, verse five. And they discussed it with one another. Can right? Can we have a minute to deliberate? <laughs> you kind of put us in an awkward position here in front of everybody, and we weren't ready for it. And we'd really like to discuss it amongst ourselves first. Um, they realize what they just stepped in a pile, and they know it. Uh oh, we poked a hornet's nest. Verse five. They discussed it with one another saying, look, you know what's about to happen here. If we say from heaven, he will say right back at us, why did you not believe him? Right? Do you, do you see the spin? We'll be perceived as faithless. We'll be perceived by the people who are trying to dissuade from following him as disobedient. But then they proceed. Yeah, but there's another angle we need to consider here before we give an answer. What is it? Verse 6, if we say from man, all the people will stone us. Oh, we're on a real tightrope here. For they are convinced. There's no turn in the crowd. These people sitting here hearing the gospel, hanging on every word. These people right here are convinced that John was a prophet. So, verse 7, look how they answer. Well, we're not sure yet. Right? They took a middle ground. Why do they remain coy about the answer? Because they lack courage and they're exposed. They're effectively subdued in this very rhetorical move. You okay, I'll give you what you want if you can at least answer this baseline question in redemptive history to this point. You te- if you can just reach the bar, I'll set the bar right here. If you can meet that bar, I will answer to you and give to you whatever answers you require. The bar is set way down here. Okay, go ahead and shoot. You tell me about John the Baptist. Oh, uh-oh. The whole crowd's going to weigh in. If Okay, think about it. We want him to be stoned. But if we answer this wrong, we're going to be stoned. So let's just kind of don't answer at all. 
and maybe it'll all just go away. But notice what our Lord does to them in verse 8. He renders them completely ineffective as leaders that came to him with their chest pumped out. We've got him. He's on our turf. We will subdue him. And with one quick question about the nature of John's relationship to the people of God and the nature of his ministry, Jesus renders them completely subdued and ineffective. They're faux teachers. And now they're in this great conundrum before the crowds and before our Lord. And look at Jesus in verse 8. He does anything but relieve them of their pressures. Verse 7 and 8. So they answered that they did not know. We're not, we're not, we're not going to, we're not stepping in the trap that you've set. We're not going to say anything. Verse 8. Jesus' response to them in front of the crowds, Jesus said to them, then I guess we're done here. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Over. They're standing there because they're caught in between the crowd. And now that he effectively shuts them down, they're removed. Their influence is rendered nothing. So then he turns back to you, the crowd. As they stand here, he turns back to you. And he's like, focus on me and what I'm saying to you. Don't worry about all these people. Don't worry about them. And I'm going to explain to you why. And I want you to receive from me the pure word of God. Receive it. Rest in it. Repent of your sins. Be converted. Have your faith squarely rest upon me. And then so now you have the same three groups present as we proceed in the text. We have the false teachers who knew they were going to end Jesus' ministry just now. And then with one quick question, they're exposed and shut down. But they don't drift away altogether. They stand there and they have smoke just billowing out of their ears as they look at him. So they're still present. But you're still present. The crowd. You're still present. You've been hearing this whole thing go down. And now Jesus is with you. So Jesus is here, you're here, and this group of scribes, chief priests, and elders are standing here, and they're seething. And the text will say they will continue to send out people to try and catch him. They want to expose him. So they sit and they listen. Now he proceeds. Now, again, he proceeds with the crowd by dusting off an old parable. If you can find it, go with me just for a moment to Isaiah 5. So go back to the Old Testament text because in order to really grasp what he's saying in Luke 20, verse 9 and following, we have to have some sense of this isn't the first time this parable has been told. That is, it's like a, it's an allegory of sorts. So join with me in Isaiah 5 so that we can see he's updating to them in front of the false teachers. He's updating to them a parable that's already been told or an allegory that's well-known within Israel. And we'll simply briefly walk through it uh, just for a moment. If you're there in Isaiah 5, I'll read verses 1 through 7. This is the ground. The reason why I'm doing this again as we read through it, this is the ground that he's using in Luke 20. So when he says, I'm going to tell you a parable. There was a man who had a vineyard. Trigger, 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 that kind of thing. Oh, wait a minute. And then those who know the text, these people who are seething, 
are hearing him speak to them about a vineyard. And they're standing there like, we're going to catch him. We're going to catch him. And he's like, hey, everybody, I'm going to tell you a story about a vineyard. And they're like, ah, you know, here they are, steam, 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 steam. And the Lord moves forward with influence. Here's a story you'll remember. And they're thinking, oh, we remember it. And so he proceeds with influence. But what are they to remember? An allegory. If you're there in Isaiah 5, I want to read the text for you. Like I said, verses 1 through 7 as the foundation for what we're hearing in Luke 20. Verse 1, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared of it, stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes. But it makes sense, right? If he planted choice grapes and did all the work to prepare the soil, it's not very unnatural to look for some grapes. So the thunder of the statement is right here at the end of verse 2. The expectation would have been natural to find grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, again, he's, just think about this hearing, and there's seeing. I'm going to tell you a story about a man in a vineyard. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Think about that in Luke 20. Judge between me and my vineyard. O men of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Now you think of the Lord's ministry. It's culminating now when he's 32 or 33 years old. He began, again, teaching and explaining the law of the Lord at 12 in the temple complex. And you remember Luke 2 when he was doing that, right? What was the response of the crowd? They were astonished at what he had said. You think of just going through Luke's gospel with the miracles, healing of a hemorrhage, um, the giving of sight to the blind, the uh, healing of people demon-possessed, uh, the um, healing of a withered hand. It, on and on it goes. Now, what more was there that I could have done for it? Is the statement here in Isaiah, what more was there I could do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Verse 4 continues, when I looked for it to yield graves, why did it yield wild grapes? And then verse 5, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. You remember Luke 19. They're going to tear down the walls of Jerusalem, 
in 70 AD. And this place is going to be burned to the ground. Because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. What more was there I could do for my vineyard? But when I looked for grapes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you only knew what makes for peace. I looked for grapes, and I found nothing but wild grapes growing within it. Well, you didn't do, you know, what more was there I could have done for my vineyard? Let me just finish Isaiah, or we'll be here all day. It says, I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that there rain no more rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. Who is the vineyard? What is the vineyard? How do we know we're getting the allegory correct? The vineyard is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. They are his pleasant planting. And this is what he has done. He looked for justice, but he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, there is an outcry. Back in Luke 20. This is exactly what we just saw when he came into the temple complex. He looked for righteousness, and behold, there is an outcry. Robbing people, blind, right in the context of worship and access to God. What more is there I could have done for my vineyard? Consider just briefly who the vineyard is then at 100,000 feet. You have it explicitly listed there in the text. Who is the vineyard? It is the people of God of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament, right? The visible church. That's who is the vineyard. Men of Jerusalem, men of Judah. These men, these people are my vineyard. But then let me recap just briefly the indictment that was read. Number one, they belong to God. They're not a random vineyard. They're his vineyard. They're not loosely out there. Hey, I'm going to tell you a story about a random vineyard I once saw. He's saying, I'm going to tell you about my vineyard. They belong to me. I cut covenant with them. I with them and they with me. I cared for that vineyard. No, you could have cared for it more. You, you were distant. You were removed. No, let me recap for you. I planted you in the fertilest of soils. What about all the stones over here? No, 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 no. You can't find any. I removed them all. No, it was a hindrance to me. No, I dug it. I cleared it. I put the choicest of seeds in there to raise up the best of grapes. Well, we were victimized from those who were outside. They came in among us and sowed false religion. No, I placed within you a watchtower of protection. It's not true. So the indictment reads, as the men sit and see, they belong to me. They had every privilege and opportunity to grow, and to know. But they rejected me and went their own way. Verse 3 and 4 of that Isaiah text. In short, what has Israel done at this point? And this is where it comes home to us. Think about this text now in these very moments. They belong to God. They had every privilege and advantage of knowing him. 
and they shrugged their responsibilities. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So, so, so we're here in Isaiah, and now we're here at Redeemer. And the same thing applies. They belong to God. They are his people. They've been given every privilege and opportunity to know him and to make him known. And the final piece is on the indictment is yet to be written, I trust, and I hope that it's being improved upon in us, is what have we done with the privilege? What have we done with the opportunities? How have we made him known? And how have we received him? Again, are we sowing? If you were to look at Redeemer, is it, I came among you and I found wild grapes. I looked in your personal sex life. I looked into it. And I found wild grapes growing. I looked into your business ethics. And I found wild grapes growing. I looked into your marriage. And I found wild grapes growing. I probe your heart and through the preaching of the word. And I find wild grapes growing. But you belong to me, and I've given you choices of privileges. We have, I I don't know, between podcasts, literature, and Google search, how much access to godly literature, devotional aids, godly conversations. But how much do we forfeit that and choose some ridiculous show or ridiculous corrupt conversation or waste our time? I looked among you. And what did I find growing? Look back in Luke 20, if you would. It still rings true. The same text is applied to the church of the New Testament. If you're in Luke 20, I'm going to read verse 9 through 12. We'll just begin there. And he began to tell them, tell the people this parable. A man planted a, vine, uh, a vineyard. And he let it out to tenants... I went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, again, there's you, there's the Lord, and then there's the third group of people who are listening in on the conversation who haven't left. These people, if we were to break down the simple allegory, these folks here who are seething mad and know what's being said about them are the tenants. The tenants are over here. A man has given a vineyard to the people, the people of God, the church. So Isaiah 3 and 4, of chapter 5. Men of Israel, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Listen what I'm saying to you. A man planted a vineyard, and then he went off to another country. He left some tenants in charge of the vineyard. Then he sent to the vineyard with the tenants some servants. What were they to do 
well, the tenants are working in the vineyard, and there's going to be fruit that is produced from this relationship. And the servants are now coming to receive some of its harvest, to check in on it, to expand upon it, to grow it, to reap its benefits in the vineyard. That is the prophets and preachers of the Old Testament. Tenants, vineyard, prophets, servants, preachers. They're coming to correct what's wrong, to to prune, to trim, to cultivate, to receive some of the fruit and the bounty of the work of the tenants in the vineyard. So they came. Well, what's been going on in the vineyard? Quick, kill him. Lest he report back what's going on in the vineyard. No, 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 no. You're my vineyard. I planted you. I came to look for grapes among you. Servants, servants, where's the grapes? Wild grapes. Quick, kill him. The dynamic of Israel. You didn't send us a good word. I sent preacher after preacher to the church of the New Testament. You were so removed. You're so distant when I prayed. No, I'm here, and I send preacher after preacher. Are you hearing that grapes might be produced, that fruit might be born? The servants as the prophets and preachers of the Old Testament. Let me just read just this small text, because if you were to go through the prophets, so you're at Isaiah, right? And if you keep moving throughout the prophets, you're going to hear the same kind of language about a vineyard that our Lord has planted as his people, about tenants who are overseeing it, and about preachers and ministers who come to serve within it and check on it and weed it and feed it. And what happened to them again and again and again and again, and is about to happen Again, what? Two days from this sermon. Jeremiah 7, verse 25. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. So quite a period of history. This is what God is saying to Israel. I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them. He adds this, Jeremiah writes, day after day. Do you hear the language of the prophet? I have persistently, you must not care enough. No, I do care. I have sent persistently all of my servants. And I've done it day after day. Jeremiah 7, 25 concludes this way. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear to me, but they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers before them. But notice, as Jeremiah says, all the way back here, persistently I have sought them. Look at the situation here in Luke 20, at the persistent, relentless pursuit of God's mercy in your life. Wherever you're at right now, emotionally and spiritually, We sang about it. We talked about it a few moments ago in the earlier portions of the sermon. God loves you. 
and is relentlessly pursuing you and calling you home. This is what he did in the church of the Old Testament. This is what he's doing through the church of the New. Persistently, day to day, I have pursued them and called them home. Give up the wild grapes. Look at how you see it right here in this text just before our Lord is one of those who is slain in Israel who came and spoke the gospel to them as the prophets of old. Look at the response of the father. Um, We'll just jump into verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, Jeremiah 7, I have sent, persisted day after day to warn you, to look for peace among you, to renew you, to call you to repentance. But they also beat and treated him shamefully. They sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, and he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Day after day I have persisted in coming to you. Mercy follows you every day. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Right at this point in time, the track record is not good. If we go to the book of Hebrews, then we see really what happened to multiple people, prophets, preachers of the Old Testament, destroyed mercilessly. So the vineyard owner says, looks upon his vineyard and says, none of these things seem to be working. What should I do? And then he says this, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. Now, think about the irrational nature of our own sin, right? How we self-justify and and how, how we take what is rational and we make it into irrational, where we take what is rational and we make it rational for ourselves. We take what is clearly a really bad choice and a really bad decision, a really bad set of lifestyles and circumstances, and we rationalize them into making sense somehow because of the sin principle within us, pursuing our own idolatries, pursuing ourselves. Think about it like this. If, if you're in an apartment, which I think multiple people here in the room experience apartment life, or we all have at one point experienced apartment life, right? So your landlord keeps coming and returning to get the check for the land, for, for, for the apartment rent, right? And, and your thought is, I know what we could do. What if we just kill this guy when he comes? <laughs> right? Like that, that, that's, the, that's, that's very rational. It, it, what, 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 what's in it for us if we do that? Duh. We could get the apartment for the rest of our lives. That's what's going on in the text. I, I, I pursued you. I pursued you with mercy. I said, preacher to you, preacher to you, preacher to you, preacher to you. Isaiah, what more could I do that I have not done in my vineyard? And what have they said with it? I know what we can do. Let's kill the son. Why? Why not? 
not that he won't any longer be a thorn in our side. No, no, no. It's more irrational than that. It's we'll take possession of the vineyard. So the owner is never going to come and check on it after you kill the son. And if he doesn't come and check on it, he's just going to give it to you? No. You know, wrong. You're going to jail if you kill your landlord. That's actually going to happen to you. You do know that, right? <laughs> so no one's thinking, you know what? This text really appeals to me in certain ways. It kind of makes sense to me. Um, no, you're going to jail. There'll be a whole investigation, so on and so forth. It'll take a, uh, it might be in short term. You're standing there with blood all over you. If you've done a decent job, it'll take a few months. But you're going to jail. That's it. You're not going to possess the apartment. That, that's just not going to happen. But do you see sin's irrationality makes that appeal in multiple categories. No, no. This life, this secret life of sin that I'm living will never be found out. And it won't destroy me and shriek my life of faith. It's going to make me feel like a better version of me and more full of happiness than I've ever had. Like, that's irrational. No, 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 it's not. Sin makes that which is irrational seem plausible. we just kill the son when he shows up, I'm sure the landlord will never come and check and we'll just have this vineyard all to ourselves. But notice the conclusion of the passage. This is how our Lord thunders the response. Now, I guess think for just a moment of the tenants. They've been thoroughly embarrassed. They think like when they crucify me on Friday, they're going to inherit the vineyard. But it's going to be taken away from them altogether. Verse 15. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They went through with it. Completely irrational plan. Jesus asked the very natural question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? It's not just some random guy he finally sent out there. It's his beloved son. What do you people, what do you think the owner will do to the vineyard, uh, of the vineyard will do to them? Verse 16, oh boy, he will come and he will destroy them. What they thought was their possession, of which they would lord over and control, is going to be stripped from them and given to somebody else. They will be destroyed. Look at the response of the crowd. When they heard this, they said, surely not. No way. No way. Look at our Lord. Look, this is a beautiful way Luke crafts, right? But he looked directly at them. Meaning, you could tell he meant business. And he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become The final result of Jesus becoming the cornerstone, verse 18. All I want to point out to you is verse 18 is a universal application. Look at the two words, everyone and anyone. No one escapes this text. Universally, everyone who falls on that stone 
will be broken in pieces. Unless you think, oh, that doesn't apply to everyone, maybe we could say something like anyone. Okay, I've got you covered. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, Jesus is the plumb line. He's the deciding factor. It is he and exclusively him alone where your faith must rest in order to be redeemed, in order to be forgiven. And he's saying it's not just good for some people, it's good for all peoples, anyone and everyone. The final question of the text then for you is this point of privilege. You are his vineyard. He's put you in fertile soil in an age where understanding is at the finger at your fingertips and the internet. Books, libraries, preaching, podcasts, every form of privilege of understanding. To the people of God, what do you do with it? What does he find among you? shrugging off of your responsibility to grow in the Lord, to know him, and to be known by him? Or the choices of grapes where his spirit is at work producing his fruits? Father, we pray that you would help us as your people, that we would not shirk our responsibilities in an age where so much privilege has been given us that we would apply your word, that we would meditate upon your word, that we would discuss your word, that we would be intent on learning and knowing your word, that we'd be obedient to our hearts being exposed and a need for repentant behavior, that you'd give us the grace to endure repentant behavior, that we would truly change by the strength that you provide, that we would be your vineyard, producing the fruits of the spirit at work within us. Let us not shrug off that is passing away or think very ill and little of our responsibility before you to know you and to make you known. You've given us every opportunity with the work of your spirit. Produce your fruit in us. Give us the grace to endure hardship. Let us be obedient to your call. Let us risk. Let us follow you, taking up our cross, feeling the weight of our life before you and the privilege of being curb our appetites, convict us of our sin, fill us up with the joy of your salvation. In Christ's name we pray.